This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Over the last several decades, the institution of the family has undergone rather radical transformations. Then again, maybe it hasn't. What about the whole issue of the role of fathers, of patriarchy? What about the institution of the family in terms of its resilience over against the challenges of the modern world? We need to take a closer look at this in order to understand not only the family, but what it means to live faithfully in times such as these. W. Bradford Wilcox is director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, where he also serves as associate professor of sociology and as a member of the James Madison Society at Princeton University. He earned his undergraduate degree at the University of Virginia, his Ph.D. degree at Princeton. He is one of those researchers, one of those faculty members in one of America's elite universities who's doing the kind of work we should all be glad is being done. Through the National Marriage Project, he is demonstrating why marriage is central to society and why it ought to be central to our concerns as well. Brad Wilcox, welcome to Thinking in Public. It's great to be here. You know, I have followed your research for so many years and uh, have talked about it a great deal, documented it and written about it. Uh, you know, thinking now just about something like the anniversary of uh, the Moynihan Report, when Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote that report back in 1965, and looking at the issue of, uh, of black poverty, African-American poverty, he said that, that family matters. The title of the report was The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. Now, Moynihan was immediately charged with uh, blaming the victim and, and was dismissed by many academics as, as barking up the wrong tree. Now you come along decades later and say that really wasn't the case. No, I mean clearly he was very concerned about the welfare of African Americans um, and particularly looking at the the welfare of African American men and how as both employment and marriage kind of collapsed um, around black men, the whole family became unraveled. So he was clearly trying to help the black family and yet because he made I think some very prophetic remarks about the consequences of family change for black families and for black kids, he was um, reviled in many different quarters in, in the culture. And he was reviled and his, uh, his wisdom was rejected. And as a matter of fact, uh, a recent study has been done just pointing the fact that the kind of pathologies that Daniel Patrick Moynihan was talking about then sure. are now excruciatingly, horrifyingly uh, more dramatic than when he wrote about them in 1965. That's right. What's now the case is that the white rate of out-of-wedlock childbearing is about 28 percent, which is higher than the black rate was when Moynihan wrote that, which was 22 percent at the time. So what we're seeing in our culture now is that many of the trends that Moynihan was putting his finger on back then in the, in the 1960s for African-Americans are now working their way up the, the, the ladder into white middle-class America. And that's I think, should be of great concern to all of us. Yeah, one of the hallmarks of your research is that you have taken this uh, into contemporary America. And, and quite frankly, uh, your analysis is, is bracing. It's, uh, it's frightening uh, because you're really talking about the marginalization of marriage in the larger American culture. That's right. The next report for the National Marriage Project is going to be called When Marriage Disappears. And it's looking at precisely precisely this issue, that is that marriage in many middle-class um, communities, both white, black, Hispanic, whatever, is disappearing. Um, there's more non-marital childbearing. There's more divorce. There's more cohabitation. There's more instability in the family. Um, and, you know, this is of great concern because middle America used to be the sort of redoubt of religion, 
marriage and traditional values. And a lot of that is, is coming unglued today. Well, I'm, I'm tantalized by your research because you really demonstrate the fact that the very things you just talked about really do usually go together. And, and what you're seeing is not just a marginalization of marriage but a, a rending a part of the fabric that made marriage central. That's right. It's particularly, I think, important for men because in many working class, uh, many middle class communities today, men are getting disconnected from marriage, from the church and from stable, decent employment. And all three of these things, you know, sort of fit together for men. If they don't have access to those things, they're not going to do well in life in so many different ways. You mentioned that the uh, New York Times Sunday Style front page just a couple of weeks ago had a fascinating story about how advertising is shifting its presentation of men. In particular, it said there's a shift all of a sudden in these very uncertain economic times from what they called the skinny skate rat look to a look that's defined in this way. They said the, the man who now appears in advertising is the man who looks like he actually might hold a job. I felt that was a very interesting cultural, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, a symbol going right. there. And uh, and when you're talking about men being alienated from these things, you also do a great deal of research talking about what happens when men are present. So it, it's not just that you're able to point to the pathologies where things are going wrong. You really take a very close look at where things tend to be going right. No, that's true. And men can successfully engage in a church community and in their families. We see that their kids, you know, flower basically. Their boys are better able to control themselves, to avoid trouble with the law, but also just to, to do well in high school and go on to college. Girls, likewise, are more likely to avoid becoming pregnant as a teenager and to move on to a successful marriage you know, in, in adulthood. So the point simply is that men actually play a crucial role in helping to civilize the next generation when they engage in their church communities and when they engage in their own families. So let's talk that through just a little bit. Let's talk about why marriage matters and let's let's pretend for a moment – that we have no theological or moral judgment to bring to this other than just uh, the scientific question. What, what happens when you marginalize marriage or, or when, you, uh, when, when you seek to displace marriage as an expectation in society? Talk to us about what's, what's left in the wake of that. Well, what we've seen basically is two different waves sort of hitting this country in the last 40 or 50 years. The first wave is really the divorce revolution when it comes to marriage. And because of the divorce revolution, you know, a large number of men become less connected to their families. The second wave is the cohabitation revolution, which is kind of coming up, you know, behind that, where a lot of younger adults who've seen their parents or their friends' parents or their aunts and uncle um, divorce have lost their faith in marriage. And they think the cohabitation is sort of, you know, is a better way to kind of negotiate, you know, relationships and risk. And of course, the irony is that that's even more unstable than marriage itself, you know, was and, and now is. And so, um, what we're seeing is that many adults and many kids are getting caught up on this sort of relationship merry-go-round, where they're moving in and out of different households and different contexts. And we know that for both adults and especially for children, that this instability is linked to any number of emotional and social problems and is also more likely to put these kids at risk of both physical and sexual abuse as they're exposed particularly to unrelated males. So one thing that marriage does on the positive side is it brings a measure of stability and security to adult relationships that helps both the adults and especially any kids that they bring into this world. So if our concern is for human flourishing, we would have to look at marriage as a uh as an essential factor in, in what it makes, uh, what is required for children and for families and for women as well as for men to flourish. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's clearly one of the crucial foundations for a stable and successful um, society. 
And you know, every major civilization put a premium on marriage. This is just one, I think, signal that it's not a religious issue. That if you go to China, if you go to Rome, you know, if you go to our our country, if you go to Britain, at sort of the peak of their civilizational power, what you see is that they tended to place a premium on um, on marriages institution on the virtues that are attendant to successful marriages. Now, you've talked in, in your lectures uh, in various places and certainly written extensively about what marriage does to men. In, in other words, it puts men in a very different social position than they otherwise would be. It, uh, it requires certain things of men and uh, it cements certain relationships and uh, relational functions that, uh, that men are called uh, to do and, and without which uh, you have all kinds of pathologies in the society. Talk about that for a bit. Sure. Once men get married, um, and we can see this through longitudinal research that tracks men over time, but once they get married, what we see happening basically is that men tend to work harder. They work smarter. They attend church more often. They spend more time with their kin, less time with their friends, and less time at the local bar or tavern. So what's happening, you know, kind of more concretely here is that men have, you know, basically realized that once they get married, they have to abide by certain norms of responsibility that we associate, I think rightly so, with marriage and fatherhood and family life. And, you know, and men respond to these norms particularly when we give status to men for being good husbands and good fathers. So just to be concrete here, I have a colleague at my department who's looked at men's uh, patterns of job search. Um, And what she finds is that men who are married are much more likely not to quit the job that they currently hold uh, unless they have a new job in hand. Whereas men who are unmarried are much more likely just to quit their current job willy-nilly regardless of what's, you know, waiting in the wings or not. Um, That's just sort of one indication of how men who are married are more likely to sort of act in a kind of an irresponsible or in a prudent fashion. And that has implications both for themselves but also for the broader society too. I can actually add a bit of anecdotal evidence for you coming from uh, work as an educator. And that is that you would think that – just to take one example – that men who are doing doctoral degrees would uh, would be able to get them done more quickly as they are single, when actually it is married students who actually are more likely to finish a doctoral dissertation, more likely to actually graduate with a doctoral degree, and to do so in a relatively uh, normal s- time span. No, in fact, there's an, a good economics paper that finds that very same uh, that very same pattern among grad students in the U.S. So that's completely true. Yeah. Now, what does it have to do with, uh, for instance, boys in a family? What, 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 what is the difference between having a father in the home and not in the home, just speaking sociologically? Well, dads do a couple of things in the home. One is they have a distinctive uh, approach to discipline. They tend to be more authoritative. They tend to be more attentive to the sort of the letter of the law um, and to assert themselves in a physical way, you know, a largely constructive way, particularly with their teenage boys. So they establish a climate of order in the home. So that's one important thing to note. But also when it comes to how they play with their kids, they tend to be more physical. They tend to be more surprising and more vigorous. Um, and they teach their kids um, how to handle themselves physically um, with others um, and, to, and to sort of excel on the, on the sports field. They're also more likely to challenge their kids to embrace life's challenges and life's opportunities and to face life's difficulties with a spirit of fortitude. We know, for instance, that kids who have dads who are engaged in their lives um, do better – when it comes to not just education but also the occupational sector and they're more likely to um, <clears throat> to embrace novel situations and circumstances. So these are some of the different things that dads, that dads do and I think we have to recognize that 
particularly in these kind of difficult economic times when dads may be unemployed, for instance, that just because a guy can't bring in a paycheck at this point in time doesn't mean that his sort of role in the family is null. That there are still a variety of ways in which fathers um, can plug into their kids' lives, plug into the lives of their families in ways that are really important for um, for the welfare of their kids. You know, a good many evangelicals have been paying a great deal much uh, closer attention to the role of fathers, especially uh, with boys in the home. And, uh, you know, every generation seems to come up with a boy crisis. Uh, and, and we certainly have pathologies to which we can point. And the reality is that, uh, that getting a young man from boyhood to adulthood through the uh, through the, the process we call male adolescence, uh, that, that requires a great deal of guidance. And, uh, and, and dad is almost essential to that, just in terms of, of how it can happen best. But one of the things you've done in your documentation is you've also looked at how fathers are instrumental in the lives of their daughters. That's right. So what I find in my research is that daughters who have a father who's not just there but emotionally engaged um, in their lives are much more likely to navigate um, the shoals, if you will, of of, of adolescence and romance and, and sex and pregnancy and marriage successfully um, compared to girls who don't have an active and engaged dad in their lives. And what they're, they're getting is a couple of things. One is they're getting someone who's looking out for them, kind of monitoring who's coming in and out of the household, boyfriends, et cetera. They're also getting someone that who's, who's giving them the attention that they, that they need um, to appreciate their own sense of self-worth and to have a sense of self-confidence to resist the entreaties of boys who don't have their best interests at mind. And the third thing that's, I think, most interesting and most provocative is that biologically it seems that dads who are physically present actually retard the onset of, of puberty or, or of sexual maturation for girls. So that if dad is in the home, girls are more likely to have have puberty at an at a later age and less likely to become sexually involved or the object of, of you know men's sexual attention. So there's a variety of ways, you know, sort of socially, emotionally, and biologically that dads play an important role uh, for daughters. You know, looking at that, you just might be tempted to think there's more than blind nature at work there. Uh, well, exactly, exactly. You know, it's really interesting to hear a sociologist at work. It's very fascinating to hear how these questions are considered and taken apart and put within a research environment. Of course, sociology is a very important field of knowledge. That's why I'm glad that people like Professor Wilcox are at this field and are very seriously doing this work. I'm thankful that he has taken marriage as a central issue of his professional and research concern. When we come back, I want to talk to him a bit more about the new shape of the family or at least the new shape of research on the family, as we try to come to terms with what's happening right now and as we look to the future. Professor Wilcox is the author of the book Soft Patriarchs, New Men, How Christianity Shapes Fathers and Husbands, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2004. Professor Wilcox, you've got a, a, a dichotomy in, in your uh, your working research here between authoritarian and authoritative modes of parenting, especially looking at fathers. Now, help us to understand that distinction. It's a good question. So we, we know from the literature on parenting is that authoritarian parents um, tend to give their kids a lot of commands. They expect sort of instant obedience from their children. Um, they're not really responsive to their kids' interests or concerns. And they don't tend to be that um, affectionate towards their children. So 
they're present and but in a kind of overbearing or a domineering fashion. By contrast, authoritative parents have have clear roles and clear consequences for kids who break those roles. So they're authoritative in that sense, but they're also known to be involved and affectionate with their kids. And so kids are getting both the love and support that they need as well as the structure that they need to really flourish. That's the difference, basically. And so you're actually breaking some of the academic rules here by using words we're supposed to have an instinct to flee from, like authoritative. And you're suggesting that there's a very important sense in which parents need to be authoritative. Certainly. In fact, um, really the sort of the the godmother, if you will, of parenting studies, Diana Baumrind, who was at Berkeley for many, many years, um, talked about the importance of authoritative uh, parenting. And my own research suggests that in some important respects – uh, that evangelical parents uh, in today's world most embody that authoritative style because on the one hand, they are firm and they have you know clear consequences for their kids when they misbehave. So they have that kind of regard for discipline. But they're also more likely to be involved and affectionate with their kids compared to more to more secular parents. So, um, you know, I think that in, in many important respects that are um, – Evangelical parents and many, you know, traditional Catholics as well have a kind of authoritative approach to parenthood that tends to redound to the benefit of their children. You know, I also have to say that uh, I recognize bravery when I see it when a man actually publishes a book in an academic context that uses the word patriarch. Patriarchy is supposed to be that you know, one of the things that we can't even mention. Uh, and yet you're talking here about the role of fathers and uh, and you've come up with your own expression here, which uh, in, in a delightful way just actually gets to why we need to talk about this. You use the expression soft patriarchs. What in the world is a soft patriarch? A soft patriarch is a man who has a sense of his role as the leader in his home um, and that leadership is um, – you know, particularly in, in today's culture, focused on the spiritual welfare of his family and the emotional welfare of his family. And so it's soft in the sense that his approach to the family is attentive to the importance of him being affectionate and emotionally engaged with his wife and his children. And um, so in many respects, he kind of resembles the iconic new man who has been held up really since the 1980s as kind of the ideal you know, husband and father for our day and age. Um, what, of course, makes him different, though, is that he has some sense that he has a unique role in, in leading the family, um, you know, moving forward. I believe it was Christopher Lash who a couple decades ago wrote a book about the family, and he called it a haven in a heartless world. And uh, there's a sense in which I think many evangelicals, uh, in terms of our own family life and church life, uh, feel like the family as an institution, marriage centrally as an institution is under siege in this society. Can you put all this into a larger social context? What what is actually happening to the family? What's happening to marriage as we observe it here? Well, it is true that if you think about the institutions that impinge on marriage and the family, whether it's the state, um, whether it's the popular culture, whether it's, um, you know, schools oftentimes, those other institutions that impinge on marriage and the family, you know, in our day and age don't either support the marriage and family sort of ethos that we'd like to see um, in a kind of active way or they actually oppose it in some important respect. And so it is the case that it's more difficult for people nowadays to kind of assume that the broader culture um, and that the legal you know, world will support their, their families because they don't. 
I mean, divorce law is a great example. Divorce law does not support lifelong marriage. It basically rewards people who want to get out um, with no consequences whatsoever for themselves. So there are a variety of, of threats to marriage and the family um, that face us. Now, but I think the danger, though, is that, and this actually speaks to, Nic- I mean, to the, the Lash, you know, quote, Christopher Lash quote that you just mentioned, is that the danger here is that some evangelicals and Christians more generally, other religious folks more generally, want to retreat to the family, want to retreat to their own marriages and seek a haven in a heartless world, not recognizing that they are still called in their own families to um, to be citizens, you know, and to be engaged in the life of their local community, however that might look. In the local church. The local church, et cetera. And, and just to, to engage people um, outside of the church too, though, um, yeah. who may not see this, the world the same way that they do, but there's a kind of calling that we all have to, to, um, to not just live in our own private world. Well, we're talking about dangerous things. Let's talk about, for instance, the fact that many uh, many evangelicals don't understand that uh, that the family and marriage take place in a cultural, social, and legal context. So there really isn't any retreat from these issues in the larger the larger public arena. That's right. There, there's a sense in which we know we're going to be faithful, even if the the, the world rejects marriage in toto. But but sure. but it's not going to be without consequences and consequences for our own offspring and children and and generations to come. One of the, the unthinkable things that seems to have been taken off the table is the role of economic factors in the family. And, uh, for instance, if you go back to the early 20th century, all the way through World War II, there was a the concept of a family wage and, and such that you paid a man what would be required to sustain a family. Well, now this economy is based on a very different understanding of wage earning and a very different understanding of worth. And uh, I, I guess one of the questions almost anyone I think would ask a sociologist these days is is whether we can afford the family. Well, I think that's a great question. And what we've seen really since the 1970s is that the real wages of men who don't have college degrees, <coughs> who actually make up a majority of the uh, adult male population, have seen their real wages decline. And we've seen at the same time the wages for Women without college degrees um, actually increase, so they're kind of at a relative disadvantage um, in a sense in their own families. They're less attractive, you know, as, as husbands. And lately, they've referred to this recession as a he session because yeah. seven out of ten of the jobs permanently lost have been that's jobs right. traditionally held by men. And that's exactly right. So the kind of the position, the economic position of many men and many families is much more precarious, and that's problematic because. Uh, men derive a great sense of self-worth from their jobs and they tend to be better husbands and better fathers when they're successfully employed. So, you know, I think we are in a, in a difficult place right now economically uh, in our country and we need, to th- we need to think very seriously about how we can renew the economic welfare of particularly of working class and poor men in our society if we indeed want to get these men to plug into their families and their churches. You know, I think this is something of a question where you've got to get the priority straight because I, I think we've got to be very careful not to buy into the argument that uh, that we have to have certain economic conditions to be able to afford the family. Uh, the reality is we have to start emphasizing the importance of marriage and uh, and family, child rearing, and uh, and then create the economic circumstances in which that can flourish. I, I'm not sure it works the other way around. I, I don't think the government is ever going to wake up one day and say we need to re- completely revise our economy and the tax code. And I don't think Wall Street's ever going to wake up and say, you know, we've written some things that are really damaging to marriage. Let's reverse that. I, I think we're going to have to rebuild a marriage culture and the, and let the demand come from the culture. Well, I think probably I would disagree with you on that score. I, mean, I, th- I certainly agree that we need to rebuild the marriage culture, but I think we have to also recognize that, you know, given these other institutional forces that impinge on marriage and the family, 
that we need to renew and reform our laws and renew and reform our you know our, our economic policies and the kinds of products that our companies produce, particularly in the cultural arena. Because once again, what's produced you know, in Hollywood, what's produced on Madison Avenue bleeds into the culture that you're talking about in terms of what happens when people are thinking about how they should order you know, their relationships, their sexual lives, you know, how they approach parenthood. So you know, I think what we need to do is work on a number of fronts. And I think what Christians have failed to recognize, though, is that the primary front is not Washington, nor is their local state capital. I would say the primary front to work on on this on this broader public um, issue is the centers of cultural production because they are yeah. so consequential in shaping the context of our lives. And I will admit, I am far less optimistic than you are. Uh, I think about about that kind of influence <laughs> well, because yeah. uh, I, I I think uh, what we have here in this in this culture is a uh, is a commercial dynamic toward the lowest common denominator. Sure, right. And, uh, you know, you talk to people who are trying or say they're trying to escape from that, and it's very difficult. I think it's one other thing that plays into this, and, and be, I'd be interested to test this against your sociological expertise. It seems to me that, especially when you look at the centers of cultural production and, and legal production, the laws, legislation, right, you, right. you look at higher academia, you're looking at people who, by and large, at least ideologically, are not greatly invested in the idea of the importance of marriage. Well, but there's a real irony here, of course, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, and that is that um, people who are college-educated in American life today actually have the lowest rates of divorce. They have very low rates of non-marital childbearing. Um, they don't want their, their daughter to come home pregnant. So you know, in the abstract, they may be laissez-faire about the family, but for their own family lives, they recognize very clearly that marriage matters. So I think the challenge for us as a culture is to get them to translate their personal recognition of the importance of marriage for their own lives and for the lives of their own children into um, a greater and broader appreciation of how marriage actually could serve the welfare of people who aren't at the same position or the same place that they are in the society. Yeah, that's why I said ideologically committed yeah, no, because I, I it, it is yeah. fascinating that uh, just as you said, and you said it very eloquently, uh, even many of the people who are not ideologically committed to marriage actually are by their lifestyle very committed to Completely, marriage and yeah. they certainly want their children committed to marriage. And, uh, and so one of the things I think we have to translate to the elites is the ability of people who do not share their status and share their income and share their uh, cultural opportunities – to enjoy the very same things that they, by their lifestyles, indicate that they know are good and beautiful and true and healthy and flourishing. No, that's true. I mean, I think there's a story I've read about Howard Stern. You know, for instance, not allowing his kids to listen to his own show. You know, and that's the. I mean, that's in some ways the dynamic that you're getting at. That there are people in our culture who, both in the, in the laws that are passed and in the culture that gets produced, which is like New York and Hollywood, um, are doing things which you know basically erode the, the quality of family life. Um, and yet in their own kind of personal private arenas are, are working in ways that protect their kids, buffer their kids from these very same forces. You mentioned an upcoming report uh, from the Institute. Tell me, what is your, your framing issue of research as you're looking to the future? Well, I'd say it's really um, – it's, it's two different things that I'm looking at in the near future. One is, is the impact that commitment to marriage – um, and sort of the, the legal sort of structure of marriage has in protecting kids and the stability of family life and, and how cohabitation threatens all of that. That's certainly one theme. And the second theme as I look towards the future is basically how how gender matters in the quality and, and stability of family life. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the academy about gender roles and about who does what around the household. And I think that's important. But I want to go beyond that and talk about kind of masculine and feminine um, styles of relating and whether or not couples who have those and appreciate those different styles of relating 
actually are more likely to enjoy a high quality and a highly, I mean, highly stable marriage. Um, so to kind of go beyond this whole gender role debate, uh, which is important, but to understand too how actually sort of masculine and feminine personalities are also kind of implicated in the quality and stability of family life. One final question. If someone came to you and said, all right, you could have chosen from any number, almost uh, unlimited number of research topics. Why in the world at the University of Virginia have you dedicated so much of your time and attention and research to marriage? Well, I was raised by a single mother and I think that she did a good job, but I certainly, um, you know, felt the loss of, of not having a father in the household. And as I became a college student, I recognized that one of the key institutions that helps to increase the odds uh, that kids have access to their father is marriage. And so my, you know, my abiding passion in life is to try to figure out how to strengthen marriage to ensure that more kids um, have an experience of, of having their own father present you know, on a day-to-day basis in their own lives. The American College and University campus is a remarkable place of cultural conversation. It's good to have the opportunity to overhear that conversation. I'm very glad in my interview with Professor Brad Wilcox, we were able to look at what one university professor is doing in one project to make such a difference. I'm thankful for the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. I'm glad to have had the conversation with Professor Wilcox. Now we need to consider how we think about these things from an explicitly Christian context. The field of sociology, as a field of academic concern, arose out of an effort to provide an explanation for human social behavior that was not dependent upon the answers that had traditionally been given by the Christian church and by the theistic worldview. You look at the history of the discipline of sociology, and it's interesting to see that even as that field was seeking to be explicitly secular, it had to consider the religious beliefs of those who were the research subjects. After all, these are very real human beings and most of them continue to have very strong theistic beliefs. The field of sociology has had its own twists and turns. But it's interesting when you look at the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, and you look at the work of a sociologist like Professor Bradford Wilcox, you come to understand that there can be some very direct relevance from this work for how we understand not only the institutions of our social life and the patterns of our life together, but how these things fit within the Christian worldview. Let's consider, for instance, the specific issues of concern in Professor Wilcox's research, issues such as cohabitation, marriage, the role of fathers. Well, if we were to consider as Christians what we would expect sociologists to find, I think we would expect, if we really gave this serious thought, for sociologists to find something like what Professor Wilcox finds in documents in his research. We need the bigger picture here, especially as it relates to our modern contemporary context. Professor Wilcox goes back to the 1960s and the 1970s and tells us what we know, but with the assurance of a keen sociological mind and analysis, he comes back to say that the moral revolutions of the 60s and the 70s in the United States really did affect the family, affected the the family in profound ways, and yet the family has also demonstrated itself to be quite resilient, as has marriage. So looking at it on the other side of this great divide, well, we come to understand that there have been multiple responses to the challenge of the modern world. Professor Wilcox, in his book, Soft Patriarchs, New Men, How Christianity Shapes Fathers and Husbands, published by the University of Chicago Press, a very substantial work of academic research, he demonstrates that the responses of of people to the challenges of the modern world as it relates to marriage and family and in particular to fatherhood – 
come down to three different models. One is the model of accommodationism. There are models of the father and of, of marriage where you see basically an acceptance of the larger secular revolution. Professor Wilcox says that there are now and are likely to be in the future a substantial number of fathers who actually have very little relationship with their children whatsoever. They are not married to the child's mother, and they basically bought into the entire revolution. That's a substantial number of men in this country, and of course that decision has a substantial amount of effect on the children. The problem of fatherlessness, of father absence, of the breakup of marriages, of the absence of marriage— and, of course, the revolution that has affected the structure of family life from top to bottom, this has dramatic effects on children. And it's interesting now that even in the field of sociology, there's a recognition of that. There is a second response, and that is something of a, of a, a middle response, a, a response that says we're not buying into this entire moral revolution, but we're going to have to make the institution of marriage and the larger context of the family fit more naturally within the challenges of modern life. And so there are those fathers who will be married at least for some period of time to the mothers of their children, but they're going to move towards a more egalitarian model. They're going to eschew patriarchy and suggest that they really are not either authoritarian or authoritative, and there will be a significant number of fathers who will respond in that way. But then Professor Wilcox gets to that third model. He calls it neo-traditional. These are those men who are more likely to stay married to the mothers of their children. They're going to be far more likely to be married in the first place. He says the vast majority of them will be married, and they will assume a role of fatherhood, which is actually rather traditional. Over against the challenges of the modern age, they are not driven away from that kind of patriarchy, but rather deeper into it, understanding the challenges that are perhaps greater than experienced by their fathers or grandfathers. They lean into this. Now, where are those men to be found? Well, speaking as a sociologist, Professor Wilcox gets right to it when he answers that question in a very profound way by suggesting that we do know where those fathers are going to be found. In his book, Professor Wilcox says this, quote, Finally, we can expect that a large minority of fathers, the vast majority of them married, will pursue a neo-traditional model of fatherhood that combines a moderate providership ethic with a strong commitment to family life motivated by a desire to both transmit their faith to the next generation and protect their children from a society they see as degraded and degrading, these soft patriarchs will combine involvement and affection with strict discipline and vigilant oversight. They will also have a strong commitment to marriage and will be unusually attentive to the emotional and familial ideals and aspirations of their wives. However, they will do less household labor than men committed to the new fatherhood, partly because they wish to signal their commitment to gender differences. Neo-traditional couples will also have the lowest levels of divorce, both because of their moral traditionalism and because of their emotional investment in their wives and children. End quote. Where are these fathers going to be found? He answers that in the next sentence. These soft patriarchs will be found in conservative Protestant churches, traditional Catholic parishes, Mormon temples, and Orthodox Jewish synagogues. They will abide by an absolutist vision of the family that they believe to be divinely ordained and that attempts to articulate universal moral principles that govern family life in all times and places. Now, one of the things that Professor Wilcox makes clear is that it, there is no accident, that there's a linkage here between religious belief and the way men live out their obligations as fathers and as husbands. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that. And one of the things we should consider when we look at this research is that here we see an affirmation of what we already know. 
and we should know, and we have to know. And that is that marriage really does make a difference because we as Christians come to this not with a basic sociological interest, but with very deep theological interest, a spiritual interest, an understanding that indeed how we are described here is exactly right. We really do believe that the family is not a sociological accident or experiment. We don't believe that it is merely something that is the process of human sociological evolution. We believe that the family is divinely ordained. Now, there's some fascinating aspects of Professor Wilcox's research that didn't come up in our conversation. Here's one of my favorites. He documents the fact that even though mainline Protestants, those with a bent towards theological liberalism, are far more accommodationist when it comes to the challenges of modernity, when it comes to the people in the pews, well, as he makes a very clear statement, the people in the pews of mainline Protestant churches, at least the men, tend to have very traditional understandings of manhood, even though their churches and denominations might be saying, a very different thing, singing a very different tune. I hope we heard very clearly what Professor Wilcox was warning us about when he talked about cohabitation. You know, the issue of sex outside of marriage and sex before marriage and the kind of sexual privileges that are now given without the benefit of marriage, this is something that has brought out a great deal of moral outrage on the part of American Christians, and rightly so. But it should be even more so a source of our moral concern. Because the persons who give themselves to these patterns of sexual behavior, these patterns of non-marital sexual behavior, are actually becoming, not only by the statistical formulas that we can see, but by the demonstrated damage to their lives, evidence of why God made us to be married and gave us the institution of marriage. What we see in this sociological research is that cohabitation basically just doesn't work. It doesn't work for those who are involved in it who find out that the level of commitment was far lower than they anticipated, and it certainly doesn't work for children because the children of cohabitating couples turn out to be, after all, rather endangered in terms of their care, their nurture, and sometimes even themselves. The other issue had to do with patriarchy. It's one of those words from which we're supposed to run. We're supposed to be conditioned in this postmodern world to think of patriarchy as an entirely negative thing, and yet... As Professor Wilcox makes clear, there is an enduring patriarchy that lends itself to faithfulness in marriage, to family cohesion, to very healthy child-rearing, and to the perpetuation of the faith from one generation to another. The distinction between hard patriarchy and soft patriarchy here is as helpful as Professor Wilcox's distinction between authoritarian and authoritative models of parenting. It turns out that there have been accommodations made by conservative Christians, even in the light of the modern world. We have come to understand that there are models of patriarchy that we do not want to embrace. There are images of the father as patriarch that we do not want to accept. But we are not scared to run right against the tide into an affirmation of the fact that God has given us the roles of fatherhood and motherhood, the distinctive roles of men and women, and the institution of marriage for his glory and for our good. You know, you put all this together and you come to realize that this sociological research is affirming what we should already know. As we said already, we should know this because we find out what the family is, not by reading a sociological report, but by looking to the scriptures. Because we believe that it is in the scriptures that God speaks to us, the very God who made us in his image and gave us the gift of marriage. But we should also expect that when good sociological research is conducted, it will show as a means of verification and demonstration 
that what we read in Scripture is genuinely true. Marriage really does matter. The family really does matter. And we care about this because we know that children really do matter. And we care about the children who are alive today and those who will come tomorrow. But for Christians, we can't stop there. Because our greatest concern is not just with this life, but it's with the life to come. And with the ultimate purpose of all things, which is the glory of God. And isn't it good to know that you can see the glory of God demonstrated not only in the pages of Scripture where God speaks, but even in a work of sociology where God's truth still shines forth. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, you can go to my website at albertmuller.com for a wealth of resources intended just for you. For more information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. Hope you'll also want to find out more about Boyce College. You can do that by going to boycecollege.com. I'm Albert Moeller. Until next time, let's keep thinking.